Okay, shall we uh, begin uh, with a word of prayer? Our Father, we're thankful once again for the salvation that we enjoy through the Lord Jesus Christ. We're thankful that you have preserved the canon of Scripture, that the truth that you have revealed centuries ago is still the truth. And we ask tonight that your Holy Spirit illuminate our hearts into the content of that truth, that we may lead godly lives before you. In Christ's name, amen. I feel turning your Bibles to uh, Romans 15. I want to show you a verse there, and then we'll get into a, quite a bit of review tonight, because we're going to move tonight, as we periodically do, from history to doctrine. So, um, in Romans chapter 15, there's a, a great scripture there that puts the Old Testament in perspective. Um, the scripture is the one that you've probably read many times. It says, Now may the God who per- gives perseverance and encouragement uh, grant you to be of the same mind, one with another, according to Christ Jesus. Well, how does God give the perseverance and encouragement in verse 5 of Romans 15? Because in verse 4, the preceding verse, it says, For whatsoever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. So one of the tools of building hope and faith is the uh, Old Testament. And just to illustrate that, since our pastor is giving a series on the Beatitudes, I wanted to show you a practical illustration of the fact that the New Testament is not new. In fact, very little of the New Testament is really new. It's called the New Testament because of the New Covenant. But it's not like everything in the New Testament is something like it wasn't there in the Old Testament. I'll prove it to you. Um, if you turn to Matthew 5 for a moment and the Beatitudes, and uh, our pastor covered the first two um, in Sunday service. But if you turn to Matthew chapter 5, verse, um, let's see, which were verses? Uh, verses 4 and 5. Now you remember this from Sunday. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, for all the world, this just looks like Jesus made this up on the Sermon on the Mount. Now, he just gave the sermon. Everybody listened and said, ooh. Well, it's more than that. Um, Actually, many of these are quotes directly from the Old Testament. The one that's not the quote from the Old Testament is verse 3. And in verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's the introduction. Just like the Psalms. It's it's almost like a title. And you look at verse uh, 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Hold the place. Turn the Old Testament to Isaiah 61. Now, those of you who have been here on Thursday nights for uh, a couple of years, uh, you've you've got at least a start in the Old Testament. Now I want to show you what you can do with that. Once you get an operating framework established, not that you know everything in the Old Testament, you could spend five lifetimes doing that, but just get the broad outline. If you hold a place in Matthew 5 and turn to Isaiah 61, verses 2 and 3. Now, when you go back here, you'll see, and if you have a concordance or a verse references, that's how you get these verses. Um, but I want you to see where this comes from and the context. In Isaiah 61, it's actually talking, it's a messianic passage. 
So notice in verse 1, for example, the Spirit of the Lord, God, is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. Now, that, that verse alone, right there, is one of those rare passages in the entire Bible that talks about the Trinity. Now, just look at that passage very carefully. You'll see all three persons of the Trinity there. The Spirit of the Lord, God, is upon me. Now, there's two characters in that one sentence, right? The Spirit and the me. Then, because the Lord has anointed me, there's the Father. And who's the me? The me is the Messiah. So the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the broken heart, to proclaim liberty to the captives, freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And Jesus quoted this in the synagogue and the Gospels, and then he stopped quoting right after the word Jehovah in the first clause of verse 2, and he did not say, in the day of vengeance of our God, because that was the second advent. First and second advents are, are clips together um, in these verses of prophecy. But notice verse, the next part of verse 2, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them the garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, so this is the comfort that is coming to the meek. Blessed are the meek, for they shall have, uh, not the meek, but blessed are those who mourn. So in verse 2, to comfort all who mourn, that is the messianic um, mission. And what do you see Jesus doing in the Sermon on the Mount? That's what he's saying. And so Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is actually citing passage after passage after passage to teach people that were all screwed up with the Pharisees, who, by the way, in their day and age were the equivalent of lawyers today. They are the people who took the law and became technicians at it and completely got away from the spirit of the law. Completely got away from the spirit of the law. To them, law was a game. It was something to be played with in court to see who could be outsmart the other guy in the little technicalities at the fifth decimal place and totally miss, totally miss the big picture. And that's what the Pharisees were doing. So Jesus was straightening them out about what their theology should have been. And so he's citing these Old Testament passages. And here is the context. Now look at something else in this context of Isaiah. Again, thinking in terms of what does the Old Testament do to help us understand the New? What does that context look like? To comfort all who mourn. When does the comforting take place? When the day of vengeance of our God comes to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them garland instead of ashes, oil of gladness, the planting of the Lord that may be glorified. Verse 4, he will rebuild the ancient ruins. What's that talking about? It's talking about the coming of the kingdom of God. And the, the blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted, was an announcement that Jesus Christ was offering the kingdom when he came in the Gospels. And he is saying that the kingdom is here. Repent. Remember what John the Baptist introduced Jesus? Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. It really was. Had Israel accepted Christ, the kingdom could have started right there in Jesus' day. So, all, so you see the context. Okay, the other um, beatitude that Mike was covering in, this, in the service was, uh, blessed, uh, uh, blessed are the gentle, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Well, if you turn to Psalm 37, we'll see where that came from. That's just an object lesson to show that the New Testament assumes that we know the Old Testament. Of course, most of us don't know the Old Testament because it takes a lot of work to, to read it, for one thing. 
Um, Psalm 37, verse 11. Again, notice the context. Look at the original scripture in the original context. Psalm 37, 11. But the humble will inherit the land and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. When? Look at the previous verse. Yet a little while and the wicked man will be no more and you will look carefully for his place and he will not be there. That's the coming of the kingdom of God on earth. So again, it's an eschatological context, and that's the context Jesus is citing in the Beatitudes. He's drawing out everything that is associated with the kingdom because he is the king. He's coming to proclaim the kingdom. And, of course, halfway through the Gospels, you see that the people reject the kingdom. And then, at the halfway point through the Gospel, what does Jesus do? He begins to teach them in what? Parables. He no longer teaches clearly. And he says, let those who have ears to hear, let them hear. See, he, he starts to mask the teaching. So only the remnant, only the believing remnant will now hear the rest of the story. Because the nation at, as a whole could have heard the whole story when he started his ministry. But they rejected him. So then he changes the tune as he goes through his, his ministry. But anyway, it's just a little... So how knowing the Old Testament really makes the New Testament come alive. Well, tonight, what we want to do, if you look at the notes, we're, we're on page 29 of the notes, and we're going to go into a doctrine section. So let me just, to, since by way of review, take you back to the original scheme of things here. Back two years ago, when we started, that's two and a half years ago. And you remember, we said that... The way we're approaching this on Thursday night, this is not a substitute for verse-by-verse -verse teaching. That's not our goal on Thursday nights, verse-by-verse -verse teaching. It's, it's a more of a history and apologetic approach. So it's a slightly different approach than is sometimes used. But the thing that we want to build in our souls and understanding is that there's this frame of reference in the Scriptures. Advance and doctrine. God speaks publicly in Christianity. That's the difference between Christianity and all the other religions is that only in the Bible does God make a contract in writing with his followers. That is not true of Buddhism. That is not true of Confucianism. That is not true of Taoism. That is not true of Islam. That is not true of any other religion except Judeo-Christianity. Only in Judeo-Christianity does the God of history make written contracts with a human person. You cannot find that in any other religion. And that ought to ring, ring bells. We ought to say, wait a minute, wh what's different here? And you know what the answer to the question is? Because in Judeo-Christianity alone, do you have a God who speaks? Who actively speaks in a public fashion. So let's look at these events again, because... This sets us up for what we're going to learn about David, Saul, and these kings that are uh, fouling up the waters here. We, we clustered these four events out of Genesis and called it the buried foundation. And we said it was the buried foundation because man, in his sin and in our total depravity, we intellectually want to suppress this. And down through the centuries, tribe after tribe, continent after continent, have suppressed this. Everybody once had it. No such thing as people who haven't heard. 
every tribe, every nation on earth originally possessed this information because they all came out of Noah's family. Everyone had access to Genesis 1 to 9 at one point in their history. It's not true that there's been culture groups and people groups that haven't originally heard somewhere yet because they all descended from Noah. So they all knew this. And associated with these, doc, these events are great truths of the Christian faith. For example, creation, we said, defines God, man, and nature. Those are the three big categories. Nothing else out there. It's God, man, or nature. What else is there? Nothing else. And creation establishes that. The creator-creature distinction. Then we went on and said the fall, which unfortunately we can't see too well unless you're in the front row. And if you're colorblind, you won't see it anyway. That is evil and suffering. That is what grows out of the fall. Evil and suffering. So Christianity has an answer to that area. The flood becomes a picture of judgment salvation that God always judges and he saves and he always does both at the same time. Every salvation in Scripture usually involves a judgment of something. Every judgment in the Scripture usually involves a salvation of something. So, he judges and he saves. He judges the world and he saves Noah out of it. Then the covenant comes. The first time the word is mentioned in the Bible. And again, God, man, and nature are defined. So, see, every one of these great events carries with it a cluster of doctrine or truth. Because the truths are, are, are tied to these events. Then we went on last year and we went, extended this framework further. And we said that you could cluster the next set of events in the scripture uh, by, uh, we call it the, the disruptive kingdom. And the reason we call it the disruptive kingdom is because it's that kingdom in collision with the world system. Because after Noah, when the human race began to engage in, in schemes of human government, of, of world government, uh, dreams of utopias, um, Man lifting himself up with his own bootstraps, architecturally embedded in the pyramid and other structures down through history. Nimrod and his group ruined the culture of the human race, and so God called Abraham out from among the rest of the human race. And he began to work a separate counterculture in history that we know now as Israel. And he had this kingdom as a disruptive kingdom because it disrupts the world order. It's always at odds with the world because the world is at odds with God. So God restarts, as it were, civilization with Abraham. Then, he, and then he, we learn there were some, several great truths associated with this, which we'll see tonight with David and the kings. The doctrine of election, the doctrine of justification, the doctrine of faith. Election, God chose Abraham and he rejected everybody else. God chooses people and that's his right. He chose history, he chose this sort of universe, and he chose the parts of the universe. And he chose Abraham to have this role in history. So election, justification, remember that truth? How is a man justified before God? God can't make a covenant with an unjust sinner. So before there can be a covenant established between God and man, man has to be justified or righteous in God's sight. So God has to take care of that problem because we can't because we're already fallen. Then faith, Abraham is the man of faith who trusts God for the justifying work. Abraham doesn't go into a works program. He goes into a faith program. Then we had the Exodus. 
The Exodus was the, again an event very much like the flood. It was one of those great dynamic events in history when God judged and he saved. In this case, he judged the Egyptians and he saved the Jews. Just like in Noah's day, he judged the world and he saved Noah's family. But in this case of the Exodus, a new element came into higher visibility. And that was the means by which judgment salvation is executed. And it is through death. And in particular, blood atonement. The blood on the doors of the Jewish homes in Egypt. Then we come to Mount Sinai. And please notice now, there's something else, and, and we'll, we'll cover this, and it'll be more obvious as we go along. I, I didn't make a big issue out of it last year when we were doing this. But tonight I want to point out something about this chart that you, you probably have looked at before and haven't noticed. Mount Sinai, we said God speaks publicly. That's when he revealed his will for his kingdom. This is the king announcing his policies, announcing his protocols, announcing the way he intended to run his kingdom. And out of that we have the law, and through that we have the doctrine of revelation. God speaks publicly. If you had a tape recorder, you could have tape recorded him speaking in Hebrew at Mount Sinai. Inspiration means that God not only revealed himself, but he inspired prophetic authors through the Holy Spirit to inscripturate that revelation inerrantly with a text. So that's called inspiration. Canonicity means certain books are inspired and certain books aren't. And so we have the canon of scripture which you hold in your hand. Then we went on and said, after Sinai, the king said, because this is a disruptive kingdom, that I want to begin my program of exterminating evil from history. And it's a very painful process. And so he declares holy war. And we have the conquest and settlement period of Joshua and Judges. And that with that, we have the rise of a doctrine which we've been studying now for months in, in practice, and that is the doctrine of sanctification. Now we're not talking about salvation because the kingdom's already there. We're talking about sanctification or the growth of people in the kingdom. And then the rise and reign of David where the leadership of the kingdom uh, comes into force. And again, we have sanctification. So this is the way the, there's been a progress of revelation. But what I want to show you about this chart tonight is observe the sequence. Observe the sequence. What we learn, and this is the value of studying the scriptures chronologically in the way God revealed them, because the Holy Spirit is a perfect teacher, he has perfect pedagogy, and he sets up the lessons in a sequence that we can understand. And he has a reason why lesson two precedes lesson three, and lesson 54 precedes lesson 55. There's a built-in order and sequence to the way God shows himself. Now, observe the sequence here. What does God do first? Because this is going to figure into tonight a little bit, so that's why I'm going back to this chart. What issue does God stress first? The law or faith? Now, let's look at that. Which issue does God press in upon people first? The issue is faith. Not the law. Not the details of his will. The issue is whether we are going to respond to him. That's faith. Whether we are going to accept his role of giving us righteousness. That's the issue. Because until we've been justified, we aren't even speaking terms with him. 
So before there can be anything else, there has to be justification, accepted and transmitted through faith. And that's the starting point. Can't go any further without that. God calls, there's the election, God calls it into existence because we don't sit around dreaming it up and saying, oh, gee, I'd like to know God today. Now, in our consciousness, we might have that sensation of waking up and saying, I want to know God this way. But if we really knew all the details, it would be because God, the night before and the night before that and the week before that and the month before that, was working on our heart through circumstances and other people to bring us to that knowledge. So here's God calling, justifying in faith. Then, of course, he shows us the details of salvation because this is the origin point of the nation. After the nation is saved, after it comes into existence, then notice, then revelation is given in detail. Mount Sinai speaks of his will, not for the world. Mount Sinai, God wasn't talking to the world. He wasn't talking to the Egyptians. He wasn't talking to the Moabites. He wasn't talking to the Assyrians. He was talking to the Jews. And he was saying, this is what my kingdom is. You're in my kingdom. This is my will for you. So, Mount Sinai is addressed to the saved. Now, here's a a spinning question here. What then is the order between Savior and Lord? Let's think about that for a minute. We have, there's a big controversy going on in Christianity about lordship and salvation and all the rest. Well, which came first here? Salvation or the, Lord, the, the law and all of the Lord, lordly details of the kingdom? Obviously, salvation came first. Then after that, his claims on every detail of their life. There's a sequence in the way the revelation came. Now, this isn't saying that this was cheap salvation, Obviously, if you had been there and you'd seen Egyptian boys die next door and the parents crying because they lost their firstborn, I think it would duly impress you that God was there. So this is not demeaning God. It's simply to say that in all of his majesty, he saves us. And then he calls us in and says, Now, here's what I want you to do. Boom, 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 boom. And then we become aware of what really is involved in lordship. So there's a sequence there. Now we've come to sanctification. And observe another sequence in this diagram. Which comes first? Spiritual growth or teaching the Word of God? How do you get spiritual growth? You can't have spiritual growth without teaching, without the revelation, without the inspiration. God didn't start his kingdom sending everybody into the conquest and settlement to kind of spook it out themselves. First, he gave them the content of his word. Then, he forced them into a situation in life where they had to apply it. Teaching and then application. Teaching and application. Teaching and application. So, where you have the need for spiritual growth is always going to be teaching. Doesn't matter who, doesn't matter when, doesn't matter which century, doesn't matter who's doing it, somebody's got to do it. In Israel, the Levites' job was to do this. Constantly go over the Torah, over the Torah, over the Torah, over and over and over and over. Repetition, repetition, repetition. Why? Because we forget. So, after that, then we can have sanctification. Because now, when we enter the details of life and face circumstances, we've got some tools. 
we know what the will of the Lord is. So we have a way of handling circumstances. Okay, now what we want to do tonight is we want to look at an expansion of doctrine of sanctification that we're looking at that slide. We said David was the model in sanctification. He provided us the perfect uh, role model for the leadership of the kingdom. Now, if you'll turn to page 29 in the notes, we want to look at some Old Testament uh, comments on Old Testament. So, keeping that chart in mind, if you look at the last paragraph in page 29, where I say, meeting circumstances God's way with trusting obedience. And to do that, let me get another slide here. Let's go back to a slide we haven't seen for a while. But this one looks at the aspects of sanctification. Now, there's a simple hymn. We all know the hymn. It's in the hymn book, Trust and Obey. But there's no other way. Well, that may sound like a little child's hymn, but it's a very profound statement. It doesn't say obey and trust. It says trust and obey. Why is that? Same sequence. What do we say the sequence of truth is? Faith comes before obedience to the law. It is trust first, then obedience. What happens if you reverse it? Let's think about that for a minute. What happens if you try to obey before you can trust? What do you wind up doing? You wind up with energy of the flesh. Because you're doing it, and you're not doing it because you really believe God's in it, or God's got a handle on it, or really doing it in thankfulness to Him. You're doing it out of Operation Bootstrap. I'm going to do it with me. And so you can't reverse it. It's not obey and trust. It's trust and obey. Okay? Let's look at the pieces of sanctification. Remember when we studied this before, we said there's two areas, the position and the experience. Trust is the position. We trust in what God has revealed to us, who we are in Christ in the New Testament. In this case, who we are in Israel in the Old Testament. Trust. And then, when we know where we are, then we obey His will for somebody in that position. But if you don't believe you're in the position, you're not going to be obedient. Not in, not in a trustworthy way. So it's position and experience. Position and experience. And we showed this, the historical illustration. The position is the Abrahamic covenant promises. Remember, what are the three promises that God gave in the Abrahamic covenant? Give you, uh, you will make Israel's destiny in history is to be a worldwide blessing. Salvation will always come to the world through Israel. The scriptures we hold is a Jewish book. Not a Christian book. It's a Jewish book. The, the Savior was a Jew, not a Gentile. And world peace is going to come when the Savior, a Jew, returns to this earth and his own nation accepts him. And that's why Jesus said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I will not come back to you until you say, Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. And until Israel, in one sense, Israel is the blockage to world peace because it's a continued rejection by Israel, of her Messiah that prevents him from returning. Not going to return until he gets a welcome from Israel. So the Jew is the key to history. Always has been, always will be. Abrahamic covenant. I will be, you will be a worldwide blessing. The second thing the Abrahamic covenant did, it promised Israel eternally land. It promised a continuing seed. 
in spite of the Hitlers of history, no one will ever successfully eliminate the Jew from history. Hitler tried it. Haman tried it. All kinds of people have tried genocide against the Jew. It will never work. They are the anvil that always breaks the hammer. So, the seed will go on. That's the Abrahamic covenant. Now, the Sinaitic covenant was conditional. Abrahamic covenant just said, Abraham, I'm going to do this, this, this. Nothing about Abraham doing this, this, and this. It was God doing the thising. Now, in the Sinaitic covenant, what do we notice the structure? All through the book of Leviticus. All through the book of Exodus. Was it, I'm going to do this for you, Israel? No. I've already done it, Israel. Now, you obey me. And if you obey me, I will bless you here. If you disobey me, I will curse you. I will discipline you. So, it's conditional. Why? Because it's the will of God. God respects our choosers and forces us to choose. doesn't treat us as robots. So, blessing and cursing in that sense as in the everyday sense of the word, is contingent. Okay, that's trust and obey. One other thing that we want to do before we get into this, this kingship thing again tonight, what did God say back in Eden to Adam? What was the role of man? To subdue the earth. Man was to rule now, what is the Hebrew word to rule? Malek. It's the Hebrew word to be king. Dominion. To malek. To have dominion over. To rule over. So that rule of man given in Genesis is most clearly pictured in what human office? The king. So let's tie this together with where we've been now for the past five or six weeks as we looked at the, at the period of the kings. Because a lot of people don't ever get into this. They'll, they'll read a few of the stories and think of it, and this, the stories are exciting. You can make a movie out of every chapter in Kings. But uh, there's more to it than that. So we, we want to see something here. Let's, let's draw a diagram. On one side, we're going to put Saul. On the other side, we're going to put David. Now, this is history from about 1000 AD, uh, B.C., on through about, um, let's put, 800 B.C., for two centuries. During these two centuries, God gave Israel a monarchy. Now, he gave the monarchy, as we saw last time, conditionally. Did he not? Did God give them a king first, or did they ask for a king first? They wanted a king. And when they came to Samuel, they said, give us a king like all the other nations. Wrong. What was their calling? Israel, who are they in Israel? Just like who are we in Christ? We're not of the world. So you can't have a king like all the other nations. I'm going to give you a king, but he's not going to be like all the other nations. And what it, what, who was the prophet who defined the monarchy? The first of the great prophets in the kingdom period. Samuel. So, un underneath this is Samuel for both guys. Samuel is the prophet and the kingmaker. Remember, the prophet is always the man who decides who's going to be king. 
king doesn't decide who's going to be king. The prophet decides who's going to be king. All the way into the New Testament, when the first character in the New Testament is not Jesus, it's John the Baptist, because John the Baptist is the prophet that makes the king Jesus. Same sequence. All right, so you have Samuel. Samuel defines the monarchy. And what is the greatest chapter in political doctrine in, in the Bible? First Samuel chapter 8. Because in 1 Samuel chapter 8, Samuel gives a prophetic insight onto the evil of centralized power and the corruption that it always generates and the tyranny that is usually accompanies the concentration of political power. He said that's exactly what you're going to have. If you do not submit as part of the kingdom of God to the rules of the kingdom of God, then your monarchy will not work and God will discipline you because he loves you because he wants a destiny for Israel unlike that of the world, he is going to kick butt until he straightens it out. So, it will be straight. That's the other side of the doctrine of election. Election means you will get there. And that's why we always like to use the picture of the Marine drill sergeant. When you get through basic training, you will be a Marine. And somehow you get the idea that you're going to have to participate a little bit in that process. You also kind of get the impression that it's going to be slightly painful if you don't participate in the process. Well, that's the picture of election. God is going to get Israel in certain shape. And so there are two models of monarchy. And it comes out now because there's going to be one kind of model, this guy, and the other kind of model, this guy, David and Saul. That's the theme that underplays kings. What book precedes kings? Samuel. And what are the two major characters in Samuel? Saul and David. And we said that David was a man after, his, after God's heart. Does that mean David was morally better than the other kings? Did he have uh, unscathed administration? When you talk about the gossips and the TV media, imagine what they would have had a field day with David. But you see, there's something different going on here. And that's what we want to observe tonight. What we want to do now is we want to tighten up our understanding of the Saul model and the David model. Because Saul is going to represent the flesh and human solutions to problems in life. And David is going to represent a man who backs off and lets the Lord solve the problems of life. It's not a question of who's the better guy. The question goes back to our diagram of how the kingdom works. What do we say was the first element in this kingdom? The law or faith and trust in the Lord. It was always faith and trust in the Lord. Which guy shows faith and trust in the Lord? Who is working the root of the kingdom principle better? David is. Now, on the bottom of page 29, I give one, two, three, four, five references. You can look them up later, but five references in Scripture that tells us, it's, it labels an Old Testament saint. In the Old Testament, it's hard to tell sometimes whether, and that's in our Q&A, you know, we've had after Thursday night Bible class, we, we, people have asked, well, gee, do you think so-and-so is a believer? Do you think he's a believer? It's, it's hard to say, but in the Old Testament, they had something called circumcision of the heart. And that's the expression you'll find in those, those references I gave you. 
All of those references speak of that same operation. It's carried over, and Paul in the New Testament recites it. So that label is analogous in the New Testament to regeneration. It means they were born again in the equivalent sense in the Old Testament. So wherever you see Old Testament saints who were circumcised in the heart, they were the real believers. There were a lot of unbelievers in Israel, a lot of people that rejected the Lord. But the people who accepted and trusted the Lord were said to have been circumcised in their hearts. They were people of faith. What we want to do now is, is look at the mechanics of how you identify David model from a Saul model. Because all the kings we studied recently, Rehoboam, we studied Jeroboam, and we studied Ahab. All these kings follow the Saul model of being a king. They're all men of works. They're all insecure. They're all trying to solve their problems with human solutions. And they all foul up and what's worse, they get involved in a compounding cycle of one guy messing up, leaving debris in history. The next guy comes behind him. Now he's got more problems because the first guy created a mess. He got his own mess. He adds it to the first guy's mess. Now we got mess times two. Then the third guy comes along. Now we got two times one more. So we got three messes. And this just keeps compounding until the kingdom, as we're going to see in the next chapter, collapses. The whole kingdom of God collapses. Tragedy in history. Because you have compounded sin, compounded carnality that is never dealt with. So God has to deal with it, and he just takes surgery, and he cuts it out. So that's compound carnality. Well, what we, what we want to notice in page 30, I've, re I've repeated there... The 11 reasons the scriptures give why we suffer. That was all back two years ago, so everybody's probably forgotten it. So, going back to our diagram, when we learned that, we learned that back, think of our events, we learned that back under the fall, under evil and suffering. And you remember that when we learned that, we said that suffering in the scriptures alone is answered. Only in the Bible do we have an answer to this, and we don't have to be ashamed of the faith. I mean, the, the poor unbeliever, they're the ones that are to be pitied. Because uh, we go back to our diagram here. Who has the real solution? You know, as Christians, we're always attacked by, oh, well, gee, if you really believe in an omnipotent, sovereign, loving God... Uh, how can you do that and have all the suffering going on in the world? And they like to, to like to really rub our nose in it right here at this point. This is a very powerful and very popular attack against the Christian faith. If your God really was strong, he'd stop this. And if he doesn't stop it, he's either not strong or he's not loving. Classical argument against the Christian faith. Classical argument. Used over and over down through the centuries. Well... The person who's, who's saying that to you has sought off his own branch. He's standing very solidly in thin air. And here's why. Going back to, remember, the pagan and the Christian. On the pagan basis, looking at history, we see good and evil mixed together. The yin and the yang. Good and evil mixed together. On a pagan basis, 
There never was an origin to evil, and there never will be a resolution to evil. It has always gone on and will always go on forever and ever. And on an unbelieving basis, there simply is no answer to the suffering issue. None whatsoever. So the non-Christian shouldn't even be concerned with it because he, he couldn't even start with a solution. He can't even define the problem. There is no solution to it. It's all just a mix out here. But in the Christian faith, we go back and we say, okay, we have an origin right there. An origin starts with a fall and it ends with a judgment because then God pulls evil and good apart, heaven and hell, and they are remain separate forever and ever and ever, never to mix again. Now you tell me, which would you rather have? Would you rather think of going onto your deathbed, never having a hope, but always if you're going to believe in reincarnation, you get reincarnated back into this mess again. Maybe you go through with it as an ant, a lion, a man, go into it as a cow, Whatever you come up with in the next cycle. Here you are going through good and evil again. Now it gets boring after a while. And that's exactly why in Oriental religion, their salvation is destruction of the individual. The classic Eastern solution to this problem is pictured as a drop of water going into the ocean. It loses its identity. It's a form of theological and spiritual suicide because it's the only way out of the cycle. You, they have no other way. There's nothing there. So that's their only salvation. So we have a bracketing of good and evil. Now we have to come in closer. Okay, we've got it bracketed. And here's David, or here's us, or here's Ahab, or here's Jeroboam, somewhere along that blue line. And we've got circumstances of life where we're suffering. Circumstances that oppose us. Certain problems that arise in our, in our environment. So here we are, now what do we deal with it? Well, what do we say? We have to walk by faith. But how do we walk by faith? Well, it goes back to the object of faith, and so we come back to this diagram that we've gone through over and over again. If we believe that God is the Creator, He is what in His mind compared to our minds, in compared to our planning? He is omniscient. He has an infinite plan that is perfect. Does that mean, therefore, as an innocent, as an imperfect, as an infinite planner that we can know the details of his plan? No. Well then, what good does it do if we know that he has an infinite plan but we can't ever know it? We trust his character. We trust the fact that he has a method, so to speak, to his madness. There is ultimately a loving reason why things are proceeding the way they are proceeding. Now if you can't believe that, you can't cope with it. That's it goes back to faith. You can fake it. You can go through all the hooplas and all the therapies and all the rest of it and all the gimmicks and repeat, I am a good boy ten times a day in the morning and all the rest of it. But all of it in the final analysis is just a lot of hogwash and hot air because it doesn't, it doesn't come from the heart. Deep down in our heart, while we're going through all the gimmicks, we know very well we don't really have an answer. And the only place we have that resting peace in our hearts is to place our trust in the Creator who is omniscient and loving and sovereign. And we cannot tell exactly what He has up His sleeve any given minute of the day. 
What we don't have to, though, because we know his character, which he has proven publicly in history through this document. It doesn't matter what your personal experience is. It's what history says. And I'll show you why the prophets demanded that the people that lived in Israel look to the works of Jehovah. There's a phrase that you'll see again, and we'll point it out before class finishes tonight. is not meant to be a total list. It's not meant to say that that's the final word. I'm suggesting by giving you a list that when there's a problem and when there's pressure and when there's a circumstance that's disrupting you, that you can trust that God has a purpose and these 11 suggests what some of these purposes can be. So let's take a look at what these purposes are. On the left side, there are six different patterns of suffering that are due directly to the fact that we have sinned. On the right, however, there are five reasons that are not related to our personal sin. And you see those patterns in Scripture. Now, we won't have time to go through all of them. I'm just pointing out, however, number two and number five are the ones we want to look at in connection with the kingdom. Number two, the effect of personal sin is self-induced misery. It is the fruit of foolishness. Whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. Very easy lesson. And a lot of our suffering is, if we had really admitted, it, self-induced. It's our choices. And then we whine and cry and all the rest of it because we reap what we sow. Well, I mean, that's why we were created this way. You don't sow one thing and get something else. So, pattern two is very popular. Pattern five is what we want to look at for life inside the kingdom. Because pattern five means that in addition to two, God the Father will discipline us even when we don't reap what we sow. We might be able to escape in some way. Some bizarre thing happens and we avoid pattern number two. But if we are disobedient to our Father, we're never going to avoid pattern number five. Because he's going to see to it that somehow he gets our attention. And that is pattern number five. Okay, now let's think about the David model of leadership and look at these patterns. Here's David, and we saw a case where David sinned. Famous incident. Adultery and murder. Okay? David does what? The prophet comes to David, and David is challenged to confess his sin. And we went through this diagram. Here's the David model. Restoration to fellowship through confession. And the first step was that there has to be a conviction of specifics. Specifics. Not generally vague, but a conviction that there was a specific disobedience to a specific will of God. Now, that was taken seriously in church history for many centuries. This is why, by the way, when people read uh, some of the great saints of history uh, in class, you'll have somebody will read something about the Puritans, for example, and they'll say, oh, these people, they ought to have gone to see Sigmund Freud or something. They're so depressed. That wasn't the point at all. Idiots who say that don't have a clue as to what that was all about. The reason the saints of the church were going through this so-called depression 
wasn't to be depressed. They were trying to go through and find what the problem is. Lord, where have I sinned? What does the psalm say? See if there's any wicked way in me. That's not being psychiatric to, to ask the Lord to show if there's evil in us. We go to a doctor and find out whether there's viruses in us. We go to the doctor and find out whether there's bacteria in us, whether there's broken bones in us. So we go to God to find out whether there's sin in us. What's the problem? Who else are you going to go to? So, here's the prophet speaking to David. And David, you remember, he became convicted of his sin. Now, what's, an, what's another synonym for the word convict so we don't get too religious here? word that is a synonym to convict is the word to convince. Why do you have to be convinced? Because what is the basic modus operandi? Faith. How does faith operate? It's got to be operating on the basis of truth. So I can't believe if I don't believe it's true. So there has to be a conviction of sin. Then there's a confession of sin. And at the point that I understand this, I acknowledge my choice. That's what God wants us to do, to acknowledge our responsibility. See, this is why there's a hidden agenda in the sinful heart of men that always creates this thing that we're going to deal with later called continuity of being, the phony pagan idea of God. You notice the last line in this chart? What was the bottom line of this thing? What is accomplished every time the biblical God is denied? Every time. Always happens this way there's an ultimate victimization because there's no ultimate authority. Only in the Bible do we have ultimate responsibility before a holy God. And that's why there are other religions in the world. They're all approaches to get around ultimate responsibility to a God that I have to answer to. And that's the bottom line why all these theologies are created, to bypass that. Well, David doesn't bypass it. When Nathan comes to David, the first thing David does, he confesses his sin and he moves on. He doesn't sit there. He trusts the Lord because he can't do anything about it. He sinned, he says in Psalm 51, I've sinned against God. I've done vast evil to my nation. I've done evil to my office. I have done evil to Bathsheba. I have done evil to Uriah. I have done evil to my army. But I have sinned before God. And that comes first. So David got it straight. He confessed his sin and he was restored. Because that's all God wants us to see. He wants us to acknowledge that we were at fault. It's our responsibility. And so we sit and we admit it's our responsibility. That's confession. Admission of responsibility over a particular disobedience. And God doesn't sit there and make us feel bad for 122 years afterward. He wants us to acknowledge it and move on. But... The consequences of that in the time, in history, may not be removed. And they weren't in David's case. David lost four sons. He had, through his polygamous marriages, he had all kinds of problems in the household, uh, almost lost his dynasty, and it, it was not a nice, pleasant scene. All right, let's go back to the patterns of suffering now and look at this chart. Number two was never taken away from David. Number five was... Because number five stopped the very instant that he trusted in the Lord. That shut down five. Because the chastening of the Father had accomplished its work and David was restored to fellowship. 
So it's number five pattern, stop, but number two kept on going. Which meant that David had to manage the fallout by faith. See, before David sinned, you could say that, well, David had uh, 23 problems that he was trying to manage here. Now, after he sinned, say he had 65 problems. So, after he sinned, even though he was restored, the problem, the pressures increased because he had to deal with the results of his sin. Now the question was with David, am I going to deal with the results of my sin like I dealt with the first? Have I learned? Because what God is doing now, he's given me an opportunity by increasing the pressure to see whether I'm going to stay operating by faith and trusting in him. And he did. And that's why the scriptures say David was a man after God's own heart. Doesn't mean he was, he was sinless. It means that he was able to cope because he kept going back to faith, back to faith, back to faith. Who am I? God called me. What has he given me? He's blessed me. He's circumcised my heart. I have salvation through blood atonement. I am saved forever and ever. God can never take my salvation away. Man can never destroy. He can destroy my soul, but he can never destroy the real me because I am in fellowship with God forever and ever and ever. And nobody can take that away from me. Saul can't take it away from me. Death can't take it away from me. Disease can't take it away from me. And no revolt in my kingdom can take it away from me. So he had perfect security. That was David. doesn't mean he was perfect morally. It meant that he was managing these circumstances. Now, we've studied for the past three or four weeks, these three guys, uh, on page 31, we've dealt with... Um, Rehoboam, we dealt with Jeroboam, we dealt with Ahab. Now, what has been the difference with these guys? What has happened to them? What did they do? They, too, had problems. You could diagram that problem that they had by saying, here's Rehoboam, now over Jeroboam in the north, and then Ahab, with a lot of kings in between. If Rehoboam had ten problems, Jeroboam had twenty, and by the time the ball got to Ahab, he had eighty. So the pressure was increasing on these guys because increasingly carnality had compounded and complicated life in the kingdom. So every time one of these guys came to the throne, they inherited a bucket of worms that was there before even their own worms. So they brought problems to the throne and they inherited problems the day they became king by from the other guys. Remember, what was the phrase we saw in the text of kings? The sins of Jeroboam. The next king, he abided in the sins of Jeroboam. The next king, the sins of Jeroboam. Why is that phrase, sins of Jeroboam? Because it was that phony religion that Jeroboam had created in the northern kingdom and the other guys never had the gumption to flush it. They kept going with it. They coddled it. They compromised with it. And they never cleaned it out. And so the result was that they all inherited the problem and messed around and messed around until finally you get to Ahab... And he messes around by marrying the witch of the day. And she manages to get her dad's Baalism installed as the religion of the northern kingdom, of all things. So we want to go back. All three of these guys mimic Saul. These two models that we have studied, the Saul model and the David model, we want to go back now, in conclusion of our lesson, to fix in our minds what unites all three of these guys we studied as far as their operation in life goes. 
they followed the footsteps of Saul. So we want to go back for a prophetic critique of Saul. 1 Samuel chapter 12. And I want you to look at one phrase in particular that Samuel says about Saul. Back when Saul had his problems, Samuel spoke to the nation. He gave a major address in 1 Samuel 8 to correct the damage done by the failure to listen to a sermon in 1 Samuel 8. So 12, chapter 12 is a, an attempt to undo the mess created by disobedience to chapter 8. And in cha- there's a lot of good things here. We don't have time to go through it, obviously, in five minutes. But if you look at verse 19 of 1 Samuel 12, after the people heard Samuel talk about the kingdom, he demonstrated them in a supernatural way that God was not pleased with their choice. Then all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God, so we may not die, for we have added to all our sins this evil by asking for ourselves a king. See, the prophetic institution in the Old Testament is never friendly to the monarchy. There's a deep hesitancy on the part of all the prophets to this king business. They don't like it. And you'll see as time goes on what they do with it. They transform the monarchy into a hopeful messiah. But they, they view it with deep suspicion. And all these stories the Holy Spirit has preserved where they had these conflicts going on between the prophets and the people and the king. Samuel gives him a warning in verse 20, 21, 22, and he summarizes in verse 24, and that's the verse I want you to look at as we, turn, as we end our lesson tonight. Verse 24. Here is what the people, including Ahab, including Jeroboam, including these kings, this is what they were supposed to do. Here are the instructions. Only fear the Lord... Now, what does that mean? It means to respect his authority. The word fear here isn't fear and trembling. It's the idea, I respect his authority. I go back to the creator-creature distinction. I am only a creature. I am not God. And I take my place. That means you sit down as a creature before the creator, period, and get that authority issue straight. We are not our own gods. We think we are, and then we meet somebody coming down the street who also thinks they're God. Only fear the Lord and serve Him in truth with all your heart. Now, how do you serve the Lord in truth with all your heart? Four, next clause explains it. Consider what great things He has done for you, and where do you find that out? Let's, let's be a person there, listening to Saul, and if we ask Saul, well, Saul, that's a great, I mean, the Samuel, that's a great thing to think about, but how do we know what God did? Where do we go to find out the great things that God has done for us? The Scriptures. Here are some of the great things that God has done for us. Why does he tell them that? Why doesn't he say, just go home and obey the king? Why doesn't he just say, be good boys and girls? Or why doesn't he say, just say no? Why does he give this particular command? Consider what great things he has done for you. That's the call to faith. And you see, all during the Old Testament, it was not a rule of law. It was a rule of operating by faith. You could not walk in truth without considering what great things He has done for us. They had to know their history. Why do they have to know history? 
because it's his story. Notice what he doesn't say in verse 24. For consider what great things he, you, know, you feel in your heart. It's not subjective. This is the objective facts of history. That's where you derive your faith from. Your emotions are up and down, up and down, up and down. A bad night's sleep and you feel lousy in the morning. You can't build anything on how you feel. You have to go back to 2 plus 2 is 4. What has God done for me? Period. And that's where we get the faith from. That's what the kings didn't do. What did we see Jeroboam violate? Verse 24. Let's review for just a minute in the end now. These three guys that we study. Here are the great things that God did. More great things. He called them to a kingdom. What did Jeroboam forget probably within a week of the time he became a king? He was afraid he'd lose the kingdom. Wait a minute. Who promised that he had the king? God did. Consider the great things I have done for you, Jeroboam. Hey, you listening? And no, I'm not. Because I'm so afraid and so distrusting of you that I've forgotten everything you've done for me. And now that I'm king, it's all up to me. 100% my works. And I've got to devise my gimmicks, my schemes, my solutions. And finally, who lost the kingdom? Kingdom was lost, wasn't it? And who's the cause of it? Jeroboam did exactly what he shouldn't have done. The thing he feared most, he wound up himself doing because he did not consider the great things that God has done. And you could go on and do the same thing with Ahab. So when we look at the design that we see here in this pattern again and again, what is sanctification all about? To school us to believe. Why? Consider the great things that God has done. The focus on sanctification is not really our hearts. The focus on sanctification is the character and person of our God and Savior. It's always looking up, not inside. Looking out away from our heart. We know what's in our hearts. It's depraved. That's what's in our hearts. We don't need to know more of that. We need to know more of what God has done for us. So, the lesson that we're still going to come to, and next week, the notes that I handed out this time, deal now, page 33, if you'll read those for next week, the working of divine chastening. And what we're going to deal with is how, under sanctification operations, God tries to get us to be a David and stop being a Saul. And he does it with that suffering pattern number five. So, divine chastening is suffering pattern number five applied to practical life. So, we want to look at that next week. Father, we thank you for our time together tonight. We thank you that you are faithful. And we thank you that you have revealed enough of your thinking and of your works and your um, desires for us that we have a sufficient base on which to trust you. And we ask that you would continue to keep us looking at you and the works that you've done for us, that we not get discouraged and downhearted when we get our eyes and all the circumstances around about us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Like I say, we don't, we're going to spend an inordinate amount of time, but if there are any questions that uh, I went too fast tonight, didn't clarify, or you'd like to ask, uh, feel free. Um, Okay, gentlemen. Uh, anybody? 
either we buried you with all kinds of material tonight or you can't come up for air. <laughs> well, there are no questions. We'll call it. Yes. Era. It's a device to get rid of Christian influences on the calendar. So everywhere I go, I deliberately make it uh, A.D. I refuse to do it, see. I don't care what they say. I have a right. If I'm writing, I will write the way I wish to write, period. And I am going to write A.D., whether you like it or not. They want to get the same... It, no, it's the same thing that, that, that uh, is going on in Alabama with the judge and the Ten Commandments in the court. Which, by the way, somebody on the Internet sent me two days ago the verbatim brief that the governor of Alabama gave to the court that's reviewing that case. This document is fantastic and potentially scary because Governor Fobb... Uh, what is his name? Who? Fob James. This guy is one sharp cookie. You know, he comes across like some sort of, you know, little boy, southern there, hillbilly boy. But when you see what he's written, you realize that this guy is a shrewd operator. The other side's got a big problem with this guy James, a big problem. Because he's not just threatening to bring in the guard, National Guard, the Alabama National Guard, to stop the feds from telling him what he's going to do in his own state courts. But he goes so far as to say, and he hits the nail right on the head, a seven-page brief built out of Luke. He uses citations from Luke and Acts. And it's built on the thesis that the Supreme Court has become an apostate, tyrannical order that has put itself in form of absolute power. He said that's untrue. The Constitution is the power not the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court... And see, this gets back to these Pharisees. My comment tonight. What did the Pharisees do? Think about it for a minute. The law was perfectly clear. Any normal Hebrew... And they were all literate, by the way, by the Jesus day. Those people were literate. And any normal believer should be able to go to that law, read it, and know what God's speaking. Now, yeah, there'll be details here and there, but come on. It's the stuff you know that gives you the problem, not the stuff you don't know. So everybody could have read the Torah. But no, Pharisees have to be the little lawyers. They've got to come in, well, you don't really understand this. Let me explain it to you. And give me 613 different things and I'll, I'll explain it with you. How to cook an egg on the Sabbath day without working and all the rest of the hoopla. That's when I brought the mission in. Remember that thick commentary? Well, they had gone through and they put all the stuff on the law. And if you remember what Jesus did, what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount, he's blasting the attorneys of the day. He comes in, he says, the attorneys are telling you, don't fear because you might get caught. See, technicality, you know, murder somebody, don't sweat it unless you get caught. And that's what the Pharisees were saying. It's evil if you get caught. And Jesus said, wait a minute, hold it here. You missed the big picture, boys. It's the ethics behind the law that's the issue here. So here, and they argue with Jesus. And Jesus is the guy that gave the law on Mount Sinai. So here you have the Constitution analogy. We had the founding fathers of this country sit down and write the thing, 
You have James Madison, who, by the way, Fob James quotes. You even have John Marshall, who was the lead Supreme Court justice, explaining in their own words in the late 18th century and early 19th century exactly what they meant by things like God, the state, uh, the role of religion, and blah, 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 blah. And so there's no excuse we don't understand the Constitution. So what Fob James is saying, and this is what's the scary part, I mean, his argument is eloquent, but probably his statement is as threatening to this country as anything I have read since 1860. Because in 1860, we had people succeeding from the Union on the basis of a civil war. And what Fob James is saying, this is not just the guy calling the guard out, what he's saying, and he quotes Madison, whenever there's an arm of the federal government that reaches tyrannical powers, it is the right of the people to disregard it and disobey. And that's the governor of Alabama who says we are morally justified in disobeying the Supreme Court because they have exceeded their authority and they are tyrannical. And we do so as submissive to the U.S. Constitution. Now, this is a debate that has only come up twice in our history. One was the American Revolution. One was the Civil War. And Christians got enmeshed in this thing. And we have to think through what we're doing because Romans says, you know, obey the authorities. Well, the Christians in the American Revolution said we are obeying the authorities. The authorities were the contracts that were written to the colonies where the colonies had signed on the dotted line a paper contract with Mother England and the king and parliament came along and they changed the contract. So now the issue is, which authority are we obedient to? The written contract or the guys changing it? And what's scary to think about is that's what's happening here. And Fop James is raising a... Tr he's, he's opening Pandora's box in that court brief. And it's interesting. This, you know how what the court did after they got his brief? They took their hands off the whole case and said it's not a federal issue. And you know why they did that? Because if they had to respond to Fop James... They had to have decided whether it's right to disobey the Supreme Court or not, and they didn't want to do that at the state level. So he's, he must have scared the kajabers out of the lawyers there, because that's what he, his case is all about. Who has the ultimate power? And then he signs off his, his statement. He says to the judge, you must do your duty, Your Honor, and I will do mine. And this is the executive branch against the judicial branch. Very serious confrontation. And it's a document I think we all ought to look at. I'm going to try to get copies of it because it's something that I think we need to study because I think this issue is going to come up. They, the other side has pushed it to this point. And we may well see now a real serious breach in this country over this issue. We're not talking race or any of the social issues here. We're talking something right down at the very bottom of our whole nation. And Fob James has raised the point. Very serious. But it's very analogous to, to the Mosaic Law. And that's what Jesus read. That's why they hated him. Think about it now. Here's this guy from Galilee without a doctorate who never went through any of the Pharisaical schools, who claims to be the Son of God, who has the audacity to tell everyone in the nation that you can go right to the Torah and learn what God wants, and you can short-circuit the Pharisees, don't pay any attention to them. They're lawyers that are hanging out in the trees someplace. Forget them. Now, how would you like it if you were... If you had spent all your life learning these things, gone to school, gotten all the degrees, and this was your profession, and you have this uneducated guy, quote-unquote, walking around with a massive following of people who are starting to basically ignore you. 
Aren't you going to get mad? Sure you are. So you see the, the vested interests operating here. Powerful stuff. And the book of Revelation says the same thing. Once the canon is inscripturated, you leave it alone and read it. That's what you do. You don't mess with it. And we always have to inject a priesthood. We have to inject a lawyer. We have to inject some interpreter, you know. That's the deal. And if you think about it now, what's, what Fop James has raised in the analogy in the civil role is why can't we read, as citizens of the United States, why can't we read the Constitution? I mean, are we stupid? We don't understand what theft means. We need a court to decide these issues. Come on. So, it's going to be interesting. Great times to live. <laughs> okay, well, next week we'll deal with, um, uh, watch that, how divine chastening, and we'll look at how the Father spanks us.